Hi, and welcome to the Changes Ahead podcast. Giving space to the often unheard questions, doubts, hopes, and challenges facing the church in Aotearoa, New Zealand. I'm Stephen. And I'm Kathy, and we invite you to join us as we imagine the changes ahead. This is a really important subject to still be talking about. And I don't think I realized until we started having it just how important. But one of the things that stood out to me in this conversation is her call at the end for us to have more diverse woman stories from the Bible presented to us at the pulpit. And she mentioned one story about a woman prophet in the Old Testament. And I went, what? I'd never heard it before, Stephen. And I was thinking, why haven't I heard this before? And so it really spoke to me about what we leave out, even unintentionally, if we leave things out, that is actually speaking very powerfully to our congregations. And for me, the title of this episode, Feminism is Good for Everyone, just encapsulates this conversation. And as I have learnt more and more about the way that different people, no matter the lens, looks at scripture, looks at the church, looks at our faith communities, it just makes me realise how anemic our communities will be and will remain if we don't include everyone's voices. And so this conversation adds another crucial lens into our spaces. I like that word, Stephen, anemic, that we don't have the full picture and we will be lacking. (laughs) And Kathy, as we reflected on the conversation together after we had had it, uh, you were noticing some things that came up for you during the conversation. And I think it would be really good if people want to stay tuned in to hear some of that reflection. So let's listen in to this conversation with Jamie. Well, Jamie, welcome back to the podcast. It's so good to see you again. Thanks. It's great to be here again. For those of you who haven't listened to all of our episodes, Jamie joined us last year to reflect on an article that she had written following the Pathfinding report being released. And so, yeah, it's great to have you back to talk about something that is a bit more your expertise, I remember you saying last time. So thanks for joining us again. And yeah, I I wonder, shall we kick off by just talking a little bit about what are you investigating at the moment in your studies? So I'm two years into a PhD in feminist theology. Uh, So my question specifically is around selfhood. So what does it mean to have self? What are some of the barriers to selfhood? And particularly within feminist theology, what are some of the ways that women's selfhood is either inhibited or can be empowered? Mm. So there's a lot of reading involved in that, drawing particularly on existentialist philosophy to develop the foundation of my ontology, which is the nature of being, and then turning to feminist theology to connect that to the theological world. Mm. Would you mind unpacking a little, you just des- described ontology as the nature of being. Could you unpack that a little bit more, just in case that's a term that's not super familiar to all of us? Yeah, <laughs> definitely. Uh, so Ontology, literally, if we break it down, it's ontos, which is being, uh, and then the the ology is the study of something, Uh, so the study of being, and can think about it as like the study of existence, in a sense, what does it mean to, uh, do we have a nature, do we do that ourselves, it's much more about the, the kind of the stuff of existence rather than the stuff of action. Wow. So just a little topic then. Just, just some basic questions, nothing yeah. too major. So Jamie, before we kind of dive in and hear a lot more, can you maybe just take us on the journey of why this topic? How, how did you get to this point where you go, this is what I want to study? Yeah, so when I submitted my PhD proposal, it was not quite on this topic. It kind of was, but without the feminist theology angle. Uh, When I got about a year into my project, I realized that I was reading people's work and it just didn't land for me, especially reading male theologians whose work just didn't actually make sense. It felt like there was something missing. And then in conversations with friends, conversations with family, started to pick up that there were questions around selfhood that were much bigger than what these male theologians were addressing and particularly were questions that only women were asking. Mm. Uh, So 
as I started reading feminist theology, I went, oh, wow, this is it. And that was such a, an incredible space to find myself in and go, okay, this is the work. This is where my heart has been. I've kind of called myself a feminist for as long as I can remember, but I hadn't realized that there was a field of study uh, within theology around feminism. I didn't know that this many women did theology and that's been a real life-giving thing to spend time reading the works of the many, many women who have been doing theology for over 50 years within the feminist theology sphere. And just seeing the questions that they're asking and the connections between those questions and my world and, and the world of my friends and family. And yeah, it's, it's really cool to be able to spend time there and, and think about the impact that that can make more widely. Mm-hmm. And I think too, what you're highlighting is they're asking different questions. And that's what we need because if you're asking a different question, then you're thinking outside what we've already been given. Yeah. Feminist theology takes as its absolute baseline the experience of woman. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that will look different for different feminist theologians. And feminist theology is most strong when we do engage with those different experiences of women because there is not one experience of being a woman and there are so many different ways that women experience their lives but it's taking as the baseline women's experience not people's experience but women's experience and then asking questions based on that so if there's some theological principle that doesn't actually match up with women's experience then we have to ask questions about that theological principle and say well if it doesn't line up with woman's experience, then what's wrong with it? Is there something that needs to be challenged in that principle? Mm. Have you got an example of one of those principles that might be being challenged by feminist theology? Yeah, so probably the the most famous one uh, and the, the one that is sort of the root of feminist theology as an area is around sin. So in the 1960s, a woman called Valerie Saving published an article where she basically questioned whether or not the narrative of sin as pride, which is quite a common narrative that we hear in our churches, whether or not that can be true for women. So there's kind of been ongoing debate about her work since then and about as many other feminist theologians picked this idea up. But the question that they were fundamentally asking was, women seem to have less strength of self, uh, encouraged to be self-abnegating through their relationships as well as through the ethical encouragements of the church. So how can women then be prideful to the point of sin? Because they don't have, I guess, that ego to hold that level of pride. So starting with women's experience, these theologians looked at sin as pride and went, well, we don't have that pride. There isn't that kind of same lording over of power that pride conveys. Instead, there's a lack of selfhood. And what if that is sinful? What if it's the failure to be a self that is also sinful? And so a real recapitulation of the of narratives of sin and selfhood in, in really interesting ways. Mm. It's interesting to me that the the issue of pride is the one that's being, or one of the ones that's being discussed there, because one of the pushbacks that I I know that people who study or use feminist theology as a framework can receive defensiveness over is almost the idea of, of wanting to dominate or destroy or yeah men. And so I guess as a man, that's my pride getting pricked, right? If, if you're coming in and saying, hey, yeah. what about such and such? So can you talk a little bit about, I guess, how feminism does or doesn't play into that narrative that, that I think is probably quite popular in, in churches? Yeah, I think there's a a lot of misconceptions around feminism in our churches. Mm. Uh, I was presenting at a conference earlier this year and was really struck by the amount of women who stood up and at the start of their their talk said, I'm a feminist, but I'm not like, I'm not like one of those feminists. And and it became this really kind of apologetic way of saying you're a feminist. Maybe we don't understand what a feminist is Mm. instead of needing to say it's not those things. So I'm really passionate about the word feminism being important and claiming that word as being important because there is such a tradition of feminism that we stand with them when we claim that word, mm. but also appreciate, like you're saying, there's, there are those misconceptions and feminism has been misconstrued as something that's about women lording their power over men, which is certainly not at the heart of feminism. The heart of feminism is equality. So it's saying 
there should be no discrimination on the basis of gender. There should be no oppression of women simply because they are women. Feminism is about sexism. It's not about hating men. Uh, it is about hating sexism, yes. <laughs> and that's the most important part of feminism. But that means that it's good for men as well. It's good for all of us because it challenges those frameworks that set up men and women as these utterly different things that actually end up putting men in a box as well as putting women in a box. Hmm. Mm. And I love that reframing, that feminism is for everyone. And that it's really good that we are naming these negative connotations because they are getting in the way of having the really good conversations. Because we, like you say, we're so afraid of thinking that we hate men. No, of course we don't. And that we want to lord it over men. And so this is what we need to be talking about. Why is it good for everyone? And maybe we could unpack a little bit more of what are those constraints for both men and women? Yeah, so one way that I think about the constraints on women mm. is using this subject-object paradigm. So the if you think of an object, um, think of, say, a cup, if you've got a cup around you. If you look at that cup, that cup can't tell you anything about itself. It is simply what it is. It can't change that. It can't define itself. It can't even name itself. Mm. A cup is only named by the person who names it, the subject. So that's what an object is. On the converse, we have a subject. A subject is someone where is as a person can kind of only really be a person um, because that person can tell stories about themselves. They can freely define who they are. They can make choices that change how they're seen by others. Because of a number of kind of systemic things throughout our societies and throughout, especially in our churches now, women are more likely to be objectified than men are. That is not to say that there aren't men who are objectified. And I think it's really important as well to acknowledge that sexism isn't the primary vehicle of objectification for some women, especially in Aotearoa, systems like colonization lead to the objectification of women of color in a way that is not experienced by white women. And we need to be really really aware that sexism is not the primary mode of objectification there but in any case objectification is occurring so I think I find that framework really helpful to think about the situation of women in our churches. Mm. So when you're talking about objectification can we unpack that in terms of well what does that look like for women within the church in what ways do you see that has been played out? Yeah, so one of the really big ones is this thing that I like to call the narrative of ideal womanhood. Mm. And so basically, if we have this image of what ideal womanhood is, that is an object that we encourage women to conform to. So women then aren't able to be subjects within that space because they're needing to conform to this object of ideal womanhood. So some of the things that ideal womanhood includes is conversations around purity, that women are expected to be kind of this pure person who doesn't engage with their sexuality. Uh, there's also things around being servant-hearted or selfless. I'm always really struck by the way that we compliment people for their, especially women, for their selflessness, which in my mind, linguistically, that's a really strange word to say that thank you so much for not having a self, for not existing. Uh, and we also, with an ideal woman, have this, this encouragement towards passivity, mm. uh, towards being led. That's kind of our, our framework of ideal womanhood. That framework's really supported by a number of Christian narratives. Uh, so I think especially of the story of Mary and the way that Mary has been upheld as this ideal woman with Eve kind of as the, the converse. Eve was sinful and gave into her own desires, whereas Mary, she's submissive, she allows herself to follow God's will and to be obedient, but she becomes, in a sense, just a vessel. Now, I don't think that's a good reading of the story of Mary, uh, but that's often how her story is read in the church, and we don't generally share many stories of women except those sorts of stories where women are really objectified. That's really helpful. 
And in thinking about Mary, you know, over the last year or two, that's exactly what we have been doing and trying to reimagine how we could tell that story. And so bringing that imagination to the text, you know, thinking about, gosh, she's a young woman in an occupied Palestine under oppression in a dangerous time in history. So I'm thinking, gosh, she's got so much courage, you know, to step up. Yeah, you don't even need too much imagination. If you read Luke, Mary has a voice. Yeah. <laughs> she's not just an object. Yeah. And uh, I love the theologian Willie Jennings uses this beautiful language of saying to God, saying to Mary, will you be my mother? There has to be agency in that conversation. Mm. Otherwise, this is a conversation that this is a story of divine rape. Mm. Uh, and I think we need to be really sensitive to that when we're reading the story of Mary. If we don't give Mary agency, if we do treat her simply as an object, as a vessel who has no choice in that situation, this is a story of divine rape. Mm. And so in terms of this reimagining, is this kind of what we're getting from feminist theology? Because we're bringing that into the text. And of course, I'm going to say, no wonder male theologians won't bring that. It's not, they just wouldn't see it. They don't see it as something to highlight. Yeah, I think that's why women's experience is so important as part of the sources of theology, because women read that text and mm. go, hold a second, do you have a choice? There are questions that women are going to ask of the biblical text that men may not ask simply because their experiences are different. So, I mean, it kind of, Everyone needs to be engaged in this, but especially we need women. We need women from different backgrounds, women who have had different experiences, who can read the biblical text or engage with theological ideas and ask questions that we might not ask if our experiences were different. You're just kind of highlighting maybe a, one of my favorite kind of throwaway lines of, of, I think it comes out of the Bible for normal people, but all theology has an adjective. And this this idea that actually the male theologians you were reading before you kind of landed in your topic now, that in some, in a lot of ways by churches and, and Christians, that, that's considered the pure theology, right? That's, <laughs> that's, the, that's, the, that's the one, that's the real theology. And then we have these other sort of topics. And yet, as I'm hearing you describe the importance of this, mm. I go, no, 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 that theology that we've seen as central in the past is actually severely lacking. And so how desperately we need feminist theology, womanist theology, the, the liberation theology, all, all sorts, you know, all of these other adjectives that, are, that bring so much richness and depth and uh, acknowledging the human experience, which is just mm. so, so important. So, yeah, this is awesome. Yeah. I was really worried about shifting my topic to being feminist theology because of exactly what you say, of having an adjective in front of my theology, which friends who study theology don't have in front of yes. their theology. Mm. And if I do feminist theology, does that somehow mean that I'll be less valued yes. in mm. general theology, which I don't, <laughs> I don't think general theology exists. In white guy um, theology. <laughs> yeah. But somehow putting that adjective in front of it says, well, no, you're just a small subsection. Yes. And so you yes. have this much to talk about, whereas white men somehow are allowed to talk about nearly everything. And that was a real concern for me. I went, well, no, I, I won't do feminist theology until after my PhD, because then I'll be respected as just a theologian uh, instead of being a feminist theologian and not having space to work with them. Yeah, and being the feeling of being boxed and that it's somehow lesser. Yeah. And yet for me, I just want to say as a woman, this gives me so much freedom to go, this is why we can critique what has gone before, because it's only been half of the population. Yeah. They're the only ones that have had the agency to have the voice. And I go, ah, that's why I'm allowed to engage. It actually creates freedom and a much more generous space for us. I hope people can hear that. Yeah. And I also, like, I do also think it's really important to stress that while feminist theology as a kind of named area has existed for about 50 years, there have been feminist theologians for the last mm. 2,000 years. Yes. There are women throughout the story of the church mm. who have done incredible work in being aware of women's experience and asking questions about theology, drawing from their experience as women. 
we don't tell those stories. No. We don't tell the stories of women leading. We don't tell the stories of women theologians throughout kind of the whole of church history, that those are such important stories to tell and to be aware of. We, as feminist theologians, sit within that mm. kind of tradition that mm. that great cloud of witnesses has, mm. has participated in. And I hope to be one of someone who can continue that thread, not someone who's starting something new. It's it's not new. It's an old thing. Oh, I love that. that. Those stories are easily forgotten. You're standing on their shoulders. I love yeah. that. That's that's really empowering. So you talked about your, I guess, your concern about being boxed. Yeah, that experience of once you finish your PhD of, of being just, and I'm putting my little kind of quotation marks, just a feminist theologian. Would you be willing to speak about some of your experiences as a woman in church, in which hasn't been sort of shaped and informed by this really important work? Yeah, so probably when I'm thinking about objectification in my experience of church, the most significant way that I found myself objectified as I grew up in the church was physically. So my experiences of growing up in a very a different church to, to where I'm at now were ones where I was told what I could and couldn't wear. I remember one time I was supposed to be leading the music team for our youth night and turned up wearing what I thought was a nice outfit <laughs> and got sent home and told that I needed to change. And thankfully I lived within walking distance of the church, but I kind of rushed home I think I just put some tights on and because I wanted to be, I was still like, I wanted to challenge the system a little bit, but also knew that I needed to go home and change or they wouldn't let me on the stage. And then basically ran back to the church as I came in, I fell over. And so it was not a great night, but it also meant that I then missed the music practice that I was supposed to be running as the person who was leading that music team that night. So my opportunity to serve in that way and to serve as I felt God had called me at that time was then limited because of someone else's decision about my clothing. And reflecting back on that time as well, the person who sent me to get changed was a man who was over 10 years older than me. When I think of how he looked at my body in that moment to tell me you need to get changed, he, as a man significantly older than I was, made a judgment about how sexual my body was. And that's not an unusual experience for women growing up in the church. Every time I was lucky to be in a church where I was afforded opportunities to lead, but every time I got up to preach, I would spend more time thinking about what I was going to wear than preparing for my sermon because what I was going to wear was kind of an issue of that that seemed bigger. It seemed like I was more likely to get in trouble for what I was wearing than what I was saying. And I think those things that we can write off as being little objectifications, like, oh, but you know, it's important for women to dress modestly or whatever. They contribute to this culture where women's sexuality is seen as being the most dangerous thing in the church. And it is a woman's fault what others think of her, what others see in her, when that truly can't be the case. There's no accountability going the other way. What is that message that you received, you know, going back to your kind of topic of, of selfhood, you know, what, what is that message that you received in that moment and I imagine others say to you or to, to young women or women in general in the church about their selfhood or perhaps lack of selfhood you know, in the subject-object paradigm that you're talking about? I think the message that I received was that I was a body uh, and that my, my body was the most significant part of who I was. Mm. Um, that's how people experienced me. That's how people were most likely to interact with me. That was who I was to them, was a body, not a person who, yes, has a body and <laughs> I, I do think is, is a body in a sense, but as someone who has so much more to offer than simply their body. Mm. I mean, I was thinking about my own fear of being objectified when I was younger, and that was more about the, the idealized Christian mother. Right. You know, I was in ministry with my husband for the first five years of being married and felt such a strong call 
to being in ministry and and to pastor. And so I almost wanted to put off. I was more fearful than my husband was about having children more because what will this mean? Will I be confined now to some idealized image of a Christian mother? And yeah, I just didn't know how to navigate that space. So it comes in lots of different forms, this what you're calling objectification. And it's not that I didn't want to be a good mother. Don't don't hear me. But I still wanted to be able to minister. I still wanted to be who I was, the strong calling. And I, I didn't know how the two would sit together. Yeah, I think women can often find themselves in situations where they're expected to remove themselves to, to be selfless so that others can have selves. So that can happen in motherhood and it can happen in marriage where the woman is reduced so that the partner in the marriage can make their own decisions and, and go off and live their dreams or their kids can and that they give up everything to enable these other people to pursue their selfhood. Uh, I have had a lot of conversations with my mum about her own experience of this and she's someone who I have heard complimented for selflessness but then just due to her own journey in the last couple of years having conversations with her about how she wants to pursue study or wants to pursue a new dream but feeling like that's somehow a selfish thing for her to do I don't think that there's many men her age who think that pursuing a new dream is selfish I think Often what I see is they're pretty happy to go out and do that, regardless of the expense of others. Whereas she's saying, but if I go do this thing, then I'm selfish. If I do this thing for me, then I'm selfish. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we can kind of end up with women who feel like if they do anything to look after themselves or, or have a dream and want to pursue it, then in some way they're actually being sinful because we elevate that self-abnegation, that selflessness to being kind of the, the ideal of following Christ. But men don't seem to bear that in the same way that women do. It reminds me of our conversation with Jo, where she was talking about the importance of self-sacrifice in the Christian narrative and how that's actually a terrible, terrible message within a sexual relationship between two partners. And that's just coming up again. That actually, for me, this 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 idea of self sacrifice, which yeah, you know, we see in Jesus, right? So it's it's not a, a bad message, and we we don't want to get rid of that. But actually, if we take it too far, that reduces the personhood of mm. of people. Yeah, and particularly in this case, as we're talking about of, of women, when we are just kind of expect we we have this ideal within our our faith tradition of 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 sacrifice for the other, that actually becomes quite problematic if it's to the point of this. I guess self-denigration or flagellation or, or whatever it is so that's i think that's this is a really important point mm. that for me is being highlighted again yeah and we're not bringing our full selves are we and so everyone misses out not only we miss out when i talk about self-sacrifice i love to talk about the fact that you need to have a self to sacrifice yeah. in order <laughs> to be self-sacrificial if you've actually denied your selfhood completely, you can't be self-sacrificial. There's nothing to give. So to encourage people to have selves is a really important part of the Christian journey. Mm. Yes, that makes a lot of sense. This might be a really challenging topic for people to, to be listening to because how do I, if I'm used to not having a self or, or, tr- or being trying to be selfless, how do I recreate a self mm. for, for myself? <laughs> That's such a good question, Stephen, because I was thinking when it's been ingrained for so long, you just can't just get rid of it straight away. It's like what you're saying about your mother. She has been living out of that all her life. She's not going to be able to just change that thinking suddenly because she's no longer got children to raise. And so even just to acknowledge it, as a beginning, but it's going to sit there for quite some time, isn't it? Yeah, I think it's really hard. I think all of the examples that of objectification that I look at, there's some massive patterns to break. Mm. Uh, that within physical objectification, there's huge patterns to break and changing the way that you see your own body, as well as within, like you're talking about the objectification within relationships, huge things to change there. It's not easy. And it's probably actually really multifaceted in terms of changing it for yourself. 
the thing that stuck out to me as a really significant part of finding oneself is telling your story. Mm-hmm. And this is something that I think we all have stories. It's kind of an easy thing and that those stories are there. The hard thing is to work out what those stories are and to be able to tell them. So feminist theologians kind of pick this up all throughout their work. This It's a really constant theme that women must speak and we must speak to each other. Mm-hmm. There is a need for us to tell stories and to tell new stories so that, that you know, I was saying earlier, that image of ideal womanhood, we can break that apart by saying, well, this is a way to be a woman and this is a way to be a woman and this is a way to be a woman. There are so many different ways that we can be women. There is no one ideal. That then frees us from the objectification of that ideal. It allows us to pursue all these different ideas, these dreams that we have, these ways of being women so that we're not constrained and then we can truly be subjects in that space. Mm. And so this is why this topic of feminism is so important because it's just even inviting us to tell our story. We have to even know that we're allowed to tell our story. Yeah. Do you know, and even what you're encouraging to say to women, let's tell it to each other without kind of prescribing or judgment, but just say, just let's tell it and hear what we have been experiencing. Even that in itself creates a different space where we can start to go, ah, I hadn't even thought that I could even question that. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, and realizing that you do have a story. There is so much that you have to say about yourself, about what you have experienced. And you also have the power to tell a new story about yourself. Often stories about us are imposed And there are things placed on us, names given to us, or things said about us that are imposed from outside. Those things objectify. And we have a choice. We can take those things on and say, yes, this is true about me. Or we can tell that new story and say, no, that's not who I am. I'm this person instead. And that is a power that we have. It's a really hard power to step into. But as soon as we start recognizing that those things are imposed from outside, we can reduce the power of them and then we can step into our own new story. Maybe it's a little bit like we're so used to trying on the same clothes and it's so familiar. And so what we have to do when we go shopping, if you can take a friend with you, I'll often go, just try that on. Just try something completely different and just see what it fits like. And so you put it on. It's not something you'd normally normally try. You go, oh, that actually... That's quite cool. So sometimes is it a little bit like that, that we have to experiment a little bit, maybe have someone encourage us just to try it on for size because that feeling of of it feeling familiar takes a little bit of, it takes time. You're not going to get it straight away. So I just wondered if, just to give people permission, just just have a try and, and try that on for size and go, yeah, what would it be like if I was to tell the story this way? What do you think? Yeah, and I think it's taking some of the objectification out of the words themselves. So I think of friends who have been told, well, you can't be a leader. You're not You're not a leader. Firstly, there's the objectification there of saying you're not something. Um, that's a really definitive way to say something to someone. But there's also something in the word leader there that then when they go, oh, but maybe I am, they want to step into being a leader. They then have to fight through that objectification of what the word leader is to them. So if they've got this ideal of what a leader is, how do they then break that down and say, because maybe they're not whatever that ideal is, but that doesn't mean that they're not a leader. So they can step into that space, but they actually have to break down what that label Mm. is conveying to them, which isn't helpful. I suppose even just in the example that you've given, many, if not all, um, women have had really difficult stories, right? And yeah. And so, particularly in, in church spaces, yeah, our, our last conversation last year was, yeah, a, a lot of those were being highlighted in, in the public discourse. And 
can you speak a little bit to kind of how we can create safe spaces for women to be telling their stories, particularly when they're difficult? And again, not through necessarily, in your case, yeah, not through any fault of your own, just simply due to narratives and attitudes and that sort of thing. Yeah. I think, so when when I talk about telling stories, the really important flip side to that is listening. Mm. And we all need to be better at listening to other people's stories. Listening means hearing everything that they're saying, not judging quickly, not leaping to tell your own story back or, or questioning whether the validity of their story, but truly listening and sitting with it and going going through the process that you need to go through to understand their experience. And I talked earlier about feminist theology being based in women's experience. The really important part of that is the diversity of women's experience. So when we talk about telling stories and listening to stories, it's also listening to the diversity of our stories. And there will be times when you hear a story and go, oh, that's not anything like my story. That doesn't mean that it's not a valid story. It doesn't mean that yours isn't valid either. The example I've thought of been thinking about recently is the flood. So I live up in Tamaki Makoto and my place was fine. <laughs> like, um, it was just kind of a heavy rain day. It wasn't a big deal. If I were to take that story as the truth of the experience of the recent floods up here, then I'm going to invalidate the stories that I hear of people whose places weren't fine. And so listening is being able to say, well, that is different to my story. My house was fine in the floods, but I'm hearing you say that yours wasn't. So how can I sit with you saying it wasn't and believe you and understand what that experience felt like, even though it was so utterly different to my own experience? Mm -hmm. That's a really helpful analogy as well, because mm. if you think of if that doesn't go well, how ridiculous it is, right? Yeah. To, to go, no, your, your house was fine. Mine was fine. So why yeah. would your house be? Yeah, like, and, and so that I think that analogy, for me, that's really helpful. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah and, I, and I do, I hear that sometimes. I'll uh, hear women who have had very different experiences in church go, oh, but that's ridiculous. <laughs> and it, it's coming from that place of, well, their experience has been fine. Uh, or, or they've never confronted these things uh, that myself or, or my peers have confronted. So for them, they're like, oh, but it's fine to be a woman in the church. But listening is saying, okay, maybe my experience was fine, but that doesn't mean that yours wasn't. Yours was. Yeah. I like that too that you said, and believe the story. That's the powerfulness of it, isn't it? Yeah. Hmm. So at the risk of bringing men back into the focus here, can we talk a little bit about the concept of allyship, of, of men being on the journey alongside women? Because it seems to me that if this is only a conversation that happens amongst women, well, the men are the ones who, for the most part, have the power, right? So what does it look like for, for a man to be an ally or, or, and how can, how can we get more of us alongside this really crucial work? Yeah, like I think that's really important. I think men have to be part of this conversation. A really strong believer that sexism is not a woman's problem. It is a man's problem. Men are the ones who have the power to enact sexism, which means they're also the ones who have the power to change it. That doesn't mean that women don't have power, but men have to come alongside women in this. They have to listen to women. They have to decide to actively challenge sexism in their spaces and women have to let men do that as well women have to invite men into this conversation and to tell their stories to men and to let men get involved this is so important I do not think things will change if men don't step up mm. uh, so like that's it's kind of a, a big encouragement to men that this is your job too. This is not just for women to, to get together around, that this is absolutely something that men should be involved in. Mm. And I guess from our conversation, I, I'm hearing that 
the first thing that that we as men need to do is is listen and believe the stories. Yeah. Are there other things that a good male ally can can do beyond hearing and believing the stories? I think the listening is actually pretty all-encompassing because there's a lot of different ways to do that. There's, there is the listening to the women who are kind of in your immediate circle who have stories either in your church context or in the, the slightly wider context. But there's also the listening to experts. There's reading feminist theology. There's looking through scripture with a feminist lens. And all of those things are part of listening. And so it's not just listening in your immediate context, because that can also put an unfair burden on women who are in your immediate context as well, uh, where women are then expected to educate you. Go out and educate yourself. There's a whole bunch of great books and, and resources that you can engage with to help educate yourself so that you don't then as a man become an unfair burden on the women who are in your orbit. Yeah. So with all of this discussion, which has been really enlightening, Jamie, where do you think the church needs to head in terms of the changes ahead? Yeah, I think it's, it's a really hard question. Um, <laughs> I Maybe I'll talk about two things. The first one is what images of womanhood are we presenting in our church? So think through the sermons that you've heard preached over the last year, Mm. how many times was the story told about a woman? So I've spent the last three weeks reading through scripture really quickly and noting down the name of every woman that I come across. Mm. And the, the confronting thing about that is how many women there are with stories. So not just women who are kind of referred to quickly within a genealogy or something, but women who really do have narratives throughout the text of scripture and really interesting narratives as well. But we're not often telling those stories. So I just encourage those who are in positions of power within their churches, whether they're deciding content or looking at the focus for teaching are you prioritizing or thinking about what different stories you can tell and what women can be highlighted through those stories? There are so many options. Mm. So have a look, read interesting stories, read some, tell something different than just the, the usual narratives that we get stuck on. With that one, what are the implications of not doing that? Do you think going forward? Like what's the, cause obviously that's, been the case I think that would be fair to say but if we continue on the trajectory of not noticing the importance of women throughout the biblical narrative what what are the implications of that for us I think we end up with a really thin picture of what a biblical woman is we have that that image of Mary Mary is this ideal can we not tell other stories as well that's not to say that Mary is not an amazing woman and what she does in the Bible Hmm. but there are so many different types of ways of being a woman biblically as well. You know, we have Holder the prophetess, and so her story is told in Second Chronicles and in Second Kings. That's a woman who's a prophetess who they take when, when they've lost the book of the law, uh, which I think is in and of itself quite a funny story that uh, <laughs> the book of the law was just lost. Uh, yeah. And they take it to this woman to confirm that it is the book of the law. And she is the one who has the authority to say, yes, this is the text that you're looking for. And then she prophesies. That's an incredible story to be telling, as well as stories of people like Mary, the mother of Jesus. Mm. There is so much depth and variety in the way that women interact in the Bible and interact with God. And I think when we tell all those stories, we end up with a really thick and kind of diverse image of what it what an ideal woman is and kind of where there's not one ideal there are so many different ways of being a woman and those stories are biblical they're not just our present day stories and jerry i have to say i've never heard that you know like why haven't i heard that story (laughs) and i have heard younger women say they long for this they long for more stories 
that, that they can hear themselves or see more pictures of their womanhood, you know, being shared from the pulpit and different stories. So, yeah, that's that would be great. What a great place to start. You said you'd focus on two areas. So that was the, the first was there. That's the first one. Yeah. The second one is leadership. Mm. We need to empower women in leadership. I really loved what Grace Stoke said in, in her episode earlier on. Uh, and she talked about readiness. I mm. thought her language around readiness was so, so cool mm. because we do get really caught up on this readiness was in a Christian context a couple of years ago and I asked why no woman had taught during the time that I was there and I was told that there were no women who were qualified which wasn't true and and that's a whole range of things there Um, but there was the sense of there's a type of readiness and women just aren't there yet we need to throw that out for a couple of reasons the first one being that men generally aren't held to that same standard of readiness that women are so if it's not a general standard, then that's a really, really unfair thing to be holding women up to. But then secondly, if we keep that standard of readiness, it means that we don't have people stepping in and we're not actually teaching or equipping people until they're ready. But how are they ever supposed to get ready? So when I'm thinking about leadership, I'm thinking who's not ready? that has the potential to be someone who could contribute significantly to our spaces. Who are we looking at to say, I want to teach you how to do this. I want to get alongside you so that you can be a great leader. That's where our vision needs to be instead of always looking for who we think is ready. I think, especially in a Baptist space, I would love to see more discernment around leadership, more time listening to God's call and really questioning who we have as leaders. I'm consistently disappointed by how few women there are in significant leadership spaces in the Baptist movement. Mm. And that's not because I think there is some quota that we should be vaguely meeting. It's because when we don't have women in those spaces, we are missing a huge part of the story we are missing those experiences, those things that women see because of who we are and because of our life experience that men will not see because of their life experience. We have to have women leading. We have to have women speaking. This is so, so important and nothing changes until that changes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and honestly, that's a there's no timeline on that. That's an instant choice to make, to say, yes, we want women leading. And then you go out and make that difference and you get women leading. I just want to go, I mean, <laughs> oh, yeah. Thank you, Jamie. That is such a powerful call. Yeah. I suppose I just want to say thank you for sticking with a feminist lens. Thank you for having the courage to do that, to say this is so important because it is giving us a different way to see. We can only see differently by you doing this, you know, going through this lens. So thank you so much. Thanks, Kathy. And thanks for letting me talk about it. It's so exciting to be able to share out of research like this and to be able to have these conversations and see the kind of on the ground impact that research can make. So I got off that conversation and was really surprised about how triggered I was feeling. And it took me quite a while to recenter myself and recalibrate. And I think part of it was that I went into the conversation already wondering, why are we still having these? Why does the church still need feminism? And why does it still need this lens? And so I was already feeling uncomfortable. And I think also being concerned about being categorized, like I think a lot of women feel, about being called feminists. But after I heard Jamie talk, I went, yes, we still need this lens. So Jamie shared some stories about her experience, and I imagine that may have touched on some of your experiences. Is that something that kind of was going on for you? Yeah, it really was. I think 
again, I was surprised because I've been out of the loop for a little while in, in, in our normal Baptist churches, and I didn't realize that women are still having the same experiences that I remember 20, 30 years ago. And I keep thinking, this is still happening. <laughs> this is still happening to a younger generation. So it, it did trigger one of my memories with a mentor who gave me the message that I was being selfish because I was feeling a strong call to start our own community, which we've been calling Sunday at four. And by this time, I was fully trained. And the thought was, if this would have been a guy coming out fully trained, there's no way he would be having that conversation with him. It's true. I mean, it reminds me of kind of some of the stuff that Grace was talking about earlier in the year, right? Where the experience that she was noticing in her peers still, her male peers, is completely different to that of her and her female peers. So over and over again, the, the, yeah, throughout the decades is, is still happening. It's still happening. And I think I felt really saddened that it's still happening. <laughs> so this is why this conversation is so important. And you mentioned it at the beginning, but I love the reframing that it benefits everyone. We need to take away the negative connotations of the word feminism and believe that it's actually just about equity. And when there's equity, yeah, everyone benefits. And without kind of sounding like we're talking too much about us, but Stephen, this is you and I doing this, bringing our different voices even into this podcast. And we are better and richer because of it. So I'm really grateful for all that Jamie brought to this conversation. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Changes Ahead podcast. If that resonated with you, or you've got thoughts about the Changes Ahead for the church, we'd love to hear from you. So get in touch on Instagram or Facebook at Changes Aheadcast, or email us at the Changes Ahead podcast at gmail.com. See you next time. <laughs>